0: Well, good morning. What a joy it is to gather in the name of the Lord. As Greg reminded us last week, we are uh, called and gathered to Christ and um, uh, together uh, for encouragement and edification. I'm thankful for his faithfulness in ministering uh, the word last week. Uh, let me just mention, by way of two prayer requests, um, uh, before we look at uh, the word of God together. One, Larry Miller will be having open heart surgery tomorrow uh, at noon. Uh, So you may want to write that down. Just keep that in your mind as you uh, go about your day. And in the morning, uh, take time to pray for him and Pat uh, through the proceedings that will take place there. Also, uh, oh, his name just left my mind. That's awful, isn't it? Uh, Doug Jensen will be traveling to Africa for a mission trip for a couple of weeks uh, this coming Friday, so uh, I do want to uh, encourage you to pray for him as he travels and and the opportunities he has to meet with uh, local pastors in Africa. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to uh, the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting with us, it's our normal habit to work through um, book of the Bible. We've been uh, plodding through the Gospel of John, Uh, and I want to take a a brief break from our study out of that Gospel. We'll pick that back up May 7th and uh, look and remind us of a few essential and foundational truths for the church's health and function. And while there are many places we could go and look uh, to to try to flesh out what that means, the, the function and health of the church. I want us to consider here in Ephesians 4, uh, this week and next week, the unity of the church uh, and its productivity. And, uh, uh, so you find your place, I'll begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 4, and um, you can just follow along as I read down to verse number 16. <clears throat> the Bible says, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism And this time, we can gather together, thank you for your word, thank you for your people. Thank you for this day that we can come and sit and, uh, and hear your word proclaimed. I pray that you would just speak to our hearts today and work in ways in which we need um, you to both open our eyes um, and, and, and move us and, uh, and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, the children of Israel has um, historically had a pilgrimage song as they was traveling up to Jerusalem. They would travel in numbers to these festivals, feasts, and there's a series of psalms in the book of Psalms uh, where they would sing on their way up. They were referred to the songs of ascents. And that's the idea, Jerusalem being uh, in its elevation being high. And so, as they traveled up to worship together, they would sing these songs. And one of which I think is fitting for uh, Paul's message to us here, it's found in Psalms 133. And it goes like this Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings, life evermore, forevermore. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you listen to music on your way to church or while you're getting ready, but I, I kind of wonder how many of us have actually sung about the joyfulness of the fellowship we share as the body of Christ. Uh, what it means to come together and worship uh, Christ together and what God has given us in this gift called the church, this togetherness. Uh, here you see in Psalms this, this blessedness of that fellowship of the people of God as they worship in unity, this God-anointed, life-giving blessedness and pleasantness that is found Uh, as we are united to Christ and united to one another. It may be helpful to see a contrast to that, and we have many modern examples, I'm sure, that we could talk about in society where uh, where coming together is more characterized by conflicts and divisions than this blessed unity. But I want to bring up a a biblical one, uh, just so it doesn't seem like I'm just picking on one particular place. Uh, the church at Corinth, as you know, if you've read 1 Corinthians, was a church that Paul begins his letter with declaring to the saints of those who are in Corinth, the holy ones. Uh, it doesn't take long till you get into chapter number three of that letter where he's addressing this divisive nat- uh, nature of that church's fellowship in fact some were saying they were of paul and others were of apollos and and others were of peter and others were of christ and they were continually uh, they were continually friction and fighting among uh, one another and it could be said if there is blessedness and life-giving uh, fellowship the body of christ then it is draining and discouraging and defeating when a church is at odds, when they fight among one another, when the body and the people of God are in friction in that way. I need not remind uh, you that are familiar with your Bibles, this is the very thing, the unity of the church is the very thing that Jesus prayed for. When he says, I hope that they be one as we are one in John chapter number 17. Uh, this oneness uh, which Jesus bought by his own blood, which he He gave his life for, is a manifestation of the glory of the gospel. And I think Greg mentioned that even last week. As we gather together and worship together, we are magnifying that God has sent the Son and all that that means uh, in the gospel. We're declaring his glory. But likewise, or, or contrast to that, the message and the scene we see in fighting and in that divisive nature is a distortion of the gospel to the world. Again, that church in Corinth who was suing one another and they were enduring gross immorality. They were um, polluting the Lord's Supper. They were Uh, trying to outdo one another in spiritual gifts and all the other things that were going on in that congregation, it is no wonder oftentimes the world looks at the church with suspicion. In fact, there are many modern examples of this. I I recall a a minister once saying that two deacons met him out in the parking lot and they were going to intimidate him, I guess work him over for some of the teaching that he was teaching in the church. Uh, another kind of division was uh, a fighting within a body of Christ between those who believed that you could eat in the church building and those who believed you could not eat in the church building. So the argument was should there really be a nursery because we may feed the children goldfish? We might find that as funny, but if you're living in the middle of that, that is one of the most chaotic uh, and divisive statements or statement, uh, or places that you can be. Churches fight whether there's not enough hymns, and other churches say there's too many hymns, and the sermons are too long. I don't think anyone ever says the sermons are not long enough, except when I first got here and preached 30 minutes, someone asked me, are you done? And I guess it was a running joke for a while, now they're wanting to recapture why they brought me here. In fact, Ryan said it was a joke for a while. I think they had a pool on how quickly I was going to finish. <laughs> well, there's many more examples. Fighting and struggles with power and discontent people and divisions that happen in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. And again, if unity if the fellowship we share with one another and i'm talking primarily about the church but it 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 really implies to every relationship we have doesn't it those of you who are married the same thing is true if you're constantly at odds fighting with one another then you're not going anywhere productive and you're tearing down one another uh, friendships and all the other relationships could fall into that same category uh, it is It is draining, it is defeating, and it is most importantly dishonoring to God and what God intends for us. Well, some of you may be wondering this morning, why in the world did I pick a topic like this? Is there something going on that you don't know about? See me after church, okay? And I would say No except for the fact uh, this kind of subject is both what we find at the beginning of Ephesians 4 and and throughout the chapter actually throughout the rest of the book uh, is essential to the life and productivity of the church that is its unity its fellowship it is essential it is important it is precious and let me just say this it is fragile It is fragile. The fellowship we share with one another should never be taken for granted because it is a fragile thing. In fact, you and I live in a culture which is demanding division. We are so polarized by uh, politics and points of view in society that some of you know Thanksgiving dinner is interesting, isn't it, when all of your family gets together? and it isn't just like your weird uncle or cousin or whatever it used to be it is so divisive where it automatically it automatically makes people enemies not just disagreement and you think that doesn't impact the church we live in a world that is set against itself maybe more so than it has been in a very very long time not to mention the culture influence that we have around us but the Uh, just the current reality that you and I sin. Amen? I just wanted you to join in with me on that and own it. We all sin, and that sin is not isolated. No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself, and that sin impacts and affects people around us. We all have a temptation. I'm going to say all because I want you to join me. Paul says all, so we'll say all. We all have the temptation of pride and arrogance, and selfish ambition. No amen on that. <laughs> but it is true. We fight those tendencies. We live with disagreements. That's just a reality of the nature of anybody, any group of people coming together and preferences not to mention false teaching in our culture, we're living in the middle of a spiritual warfare. All of that to say that Paul's command here in Ephesians chapter number four is a a warranted command for us to heed today. So is there something going on? Yeah, we live in a world that is divided. And we face that division, we face those differences between one another, we face spiritual warfare, and we have to be reminded that the unity that we have, the fellowship that we have is both precious and fragile. Now let's look at one. I want us to consider the foundation of our fellowship or unity. You can interchange those words. And secondly, I want us to look at the maintenance of it. And thirdly, I want to offer you a few practical Steps or practical guidelines may help you. First, let's look at uh, the foundation of our unity or fellowship. And let's go back to chapter number two, with me. The gospel is a uniting or is a uniting work. What Christ did on Calvary is a a work of reconciliation. It is bringing people bringing two parties that were once at odds. The Bible uses the word at enmity and even says that we were at once hostile in mind towards God and it is uniting those two parties. Both first primarily we see that in the sense of God in ourselves as God is reconciling us to himself through Christ. And look at chapter number two with me, verse number five, let me just read verse number one leading up to five. He's speaking of their own testimony and he says this in verse number one. You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and sons of disobedience. Now, when was this true of those that he's speaking of? Well, it's true of those just as it's true of everyone else. It's true of those before christ before they came to faith in christ before god raised them from the dead this is true of every human being it's not speaking to a particular class or a particular group of people that's important you'll see in just a few moments but he's saying this was you historically this is where god found you and what god has done for you and if you were in christ this morning this was your testimony this is your testimony And he says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, don't you love that phrase, by the way? Uh, This was true, but there's a big contrast. Something happened. And then what happened? Well, God happened. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice this next phrase, made us alive together with Christ. So the uniting work of the gospel is bringing us out of death and making us alive together with Christ. And reconciling us to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, verse number 6, he continues that thought, raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that. What he's saying to us, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. As Christ is seated beside the Father, the right hand of the Father in all victory, so we are seated with him. His victory becomes our victory, and he has brought us to himself and will one day bring us physically to himself when he returns. And so the uniting work of the gospel is primarily first uniting us with Christ. It is not only being seated with him. He later picks up the language that it is in him, in Christ, that all of these spiritual blessings that he mentions in the book of Ephesians are ours. He's uniting us to Christ. And uh, in uh, Colossians, he tells us in chapter number three, and so much so that when Christ appears, your life will appear with him. So the gospel work is a uniting work. It is a work that brings us into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. God has brought us into that, that work of reconciliation. And it's so to be said that this is, and normally how we read the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and Philippians is we look at this through the lens of ourselves, through the lens of being an individual person. You ought to do that. In fact, that is a, one of the most significant important questions you could ever answer in all of your life. Have I been raised with Christ? Have I been seated with him? Is everything that he said in this passage true of me? Have I been born again? Is my sins forgiven? Am I a new creation in Christ Jesus? That answer is significant and you should answer that. And if you're here this morning and you can't answer that in an affirmative way, in a way that says, yes, I know this is true of me as I read this, I understand this is what Christ has done for me, and I have been born again, and and I have been seated with Christ, then I want to just encourage you, come see me or somebody you're with that knows Christ, walking with Christ, and ask them, how can this be true of you? Uh, aside from everything going on this afternoon, I would love to just sit down and, and show you what this means and how this can apply to your life as well. So it is significant to look at it individualistically, uh, To to put ourselves in the passage, but well, this letter was written to a group of people that met together, that worshiped together, and and he is speaking to them in a corporate fashion. So we look at this individualistically, but we also must look at this in the sense of community. And, And he's reminding them in two ways. Not only has God reconciled you to himself through Christ, you're in fellowship with the Father through Christ in Christ, but he's also done that to other people as well. It's the idea of you're being saved, but you're not the only one. There's a family of God, a fellowship of believers, and that's the language that he uses throughout the rest of chapter number 2 and chapter number 3. Notice with me verse number 19. He says this in chapter number 2. He begins this by saying... um, In verse number 11, speaking to the Gentiles in the flesh, you were one time without hope, separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant. But now in Christ, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13. Uh, in verse number 14, he says, He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And what is he saying? Well, there's an image that he gives, and that's the image of the temple, this kind of wall that separated Jew and Gentile. In that culture, a Gentile could come only so far when it came into the true fellowship of the people of God. They had to stand on the outside, and if they'd enter in any closer, then they would be taking their life in their own hands. There was a court of Gentiles at the temple, and it was there that, Jesus cleansed twice that area in the court of Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is that in Christ he tore down this barrier, this wall that separated, that divided Jew and Gentile. In fact, this is the very mystery of the gospel in chapter number three, verse number six. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, I want you to understand, and, and many of you do, you may have heard this uh, many times, but understand this is two completely different backgrounds of people. In fact, insomuch so that much of the Gentiles' lifestyles, their preferences, their practices, their culture was considered to be unclean to the Jew. And here Paul just saying, oh, yeah, by the way, they're fellow heirs with you, part of the family of God. It's like going into the, uh, the the time in America and segregation and removing the signs off the water fountain. says, it doesn't matter, we're all just human. Let's just all drink from whatever fountain you want to. Well, today it seems like one ought to do that. But back then, you might get shot doing something like that. This was a shocking reality to the hearers of Paul's day. The fact that God could save Gentiles was trouble enough without being circumcised and now you're telling us they're on the same level as the Jews and what he's sharing with us here is that God is through Christ uniting us tearing down not just transcending over every barrier but tearing down those barriers which separated us God is uniting us together into one man. He is uniting us to himself in Christ, but he is also uniting us together, giving us a fellowship together, bringing us together. What a blessedness that is, uh, the mystery which he has given to us. Not only is the gospel a united, uh, uniting word, but it's also built upon uniformed truths. I was uh, in Charlotte two weeks ago, uh, waiting on my flight to uh, Tri-Cities, Tennessee, and was, I was there, I was sitting beside a guy, I'd been reading Thomas Watson on the plane and decided I need some social interaction after uh, four hours of reading Thomas Watson. Anyway, this guy sitting beside me, he had a very familiar tone to his uh, voice and uh, dialect and Sounded like I knew where he might be from, and he may be on the same flight I'm on. And uh, so after I got done eavesdropping about his phone call, and he got off the phone, because we're like that, we're nosy. <laughs> his fl- his flight was delayed, and he had all kinds of trouble, come from Las Vegas. Now that's important for what I'm telling you, but just want you to know I'm a good listener if you tell me something. <laughs> and... um So I began to talk to him and ask him where he's from, what is he doing, and and, and why is he traveling, you know, all the questions I didn't need an an answer for, but just making small talk. And um, he's from the area I grew up, uh, rather large area, so you might think I knew him. I'm not related to him or I don't know him, didn't know him. Uh, and he said he was into drag racing. He was official and, and did the official stuff with drag racing, whatever that is. I know what drag racing is. The official part, I don't know. So thank you very much. <laughs> so I asked him, I said, so do you know, uh, and I give him a gentleman's name that I knew that had a drag race car. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know him. He's really a great guy. We talked for quite a few minutes about the kind of car he drove and all this other stuff about this other gentleman that we both knew. And that's to say that their their fellowship, their their, their relationship, the, the kind of thing they had going on had to have a, a commonality. There had to be a, a common foundation. Uh, and that's the way it is. Political parties, sports, they have sports parties, uh, all this other stuff, fan clubs, they, they had to have something in common that helps them stay grounded and that brings people together. And what we see, just even in this illustration of Jew and Gentiles, their life backgrounds and upbringing wasn't going to unite them. Their way of worship and the the translation of Bible they preferred was not going to happen. Uh, The very things they liked to eat definitely wasn't going to bring them together. What would bring them and unite such diverse people? It's the very same thing that brings such diverse people together this morning. Uh, and some of us like the same thing. Some of us may vote the same way. Some of us may, may have the same hobbies. But in, in reality, we have to have something more substantial, more meaningful that unites us together, or we will never have true God anointed, life giving fellowship. Amen? And that's what Paul gives to us here. In chapter number 4, verses 4 through 6, it is, some believe, an early church statement of faith, maybe a song or, or something, some way that they, they retained or, or uh, spoke about their faith and passed on some core elements of their faith. Some people look at it that way. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Nevertheless, he mentions seven times in these three verses this emphasis of one. Of one. What will bring us together? Well, some of you say, Well, Christ brings us together. And praise God. That's true. But what do we mean by that? Uh, what do we understand with all of that? And, and so he fleshes that out just a little bit for us by giving us this confession of faith or this common faith that we share together. Notice verse number four it says, There is how many bodies? One? One spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. How many of you have hope this morning? And do you know you share the same hope as the person beside you, if they have hope in Christ? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but that we are His. Now we have that one hope. We share that foundation of that one hope. And he goes on, that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This kind of Trinitarian formula. There's just all of God given to us. We share that. That doesn't mean that we, we don't have disagreements. Uh, there's disagreements about end times. There's disagreements about the mode and, uh, of baptism. There's other things that we disagree on when it comes to hermeneutics. But, but at the bottom line, we share the same common faith. I really think that you should be able to take our statement of faith at our church here, and I think you should look at it, depending, no matter what background you come from, and say, that's biblical. That's what we should build our fellowship on those basic statements of the Christian faith. That's what unites us, not the things that divide us, and that's what we tend to do, don't we? We kind of get things out of order. We tend to champion those things that are divisive instead of champion those things which unite us. And so we have a uniform truth, that same foundation that we're built on. And I would say, thirdly, speaking of the uh, just the foundation of our unity, that is the gospel's price of it. Our fellowship came at a great cost. The fellowship we share with one another was forged in Christ's blood and on His cross. I look back at in chapter number two with me, verse number sixteen. It is precious because of the because of the price paid for it, and might reconcile us. Speaking of what Christ is doing for us, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How does he bring us together through his death on the cross? That is what unites us. We're united to the death of Christ, the foundation of those common, or the common faith, those common truths. Let me uh, mention... Secondly, not only the foundation of our unity, but the maintenance of our unity. Look at with me, verse number one of chapter number four. He begins this by a, really a transition. Up to this point, he has been... He's been speaking about everything that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's all been about what has happened. We have, for the most part, been passive in the sense this has been done to us and for us and what God has marvelously done with His grace and mercy. And he gets to chapter 4, and it's almost like that Romans 12 thing where it's a transition, where he goes from doctrine to duty, or this is to be applied or, or fleshed out in our lives. And he does this by urging. Pleading with the church, I therefore prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is in jail, literally prisoner of the Lord for obedience, not disobedience. And when he calls the church to, to walk in humility, he is displaying it in his own life, both by affirming that he is a prisoner of the Lord and secondly, by his willingness to urge and beg the church to walk in a manner that is, uh, that is compared to what has been said about them. That's what he says, isn't it? Look at it with me. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith you have been called. We don't talk like that, do we? I mean if we use worthy, it's almost always in the affirmative. I am worthy of this. I am worthy of being treated this way. How many of you said that last week? It's okay. We won't judge. Yes, we will. It's a lie. <laughs> what does he mean, worthy? Well, worthy itself could be best seen as a a, a, a scale, a pair of balances. What he's saying to the church is live in a way that is consistent with God's call in your life. What God has called you to do. What God has done to the, to the grace which you've experienced. Let what God said about you and what God has done in you, let it be fleshed out in how you live and walk this life. Let the manner and the way you live, let it be appropriate to God's saving grace. Just like unity, there is that, that contrast which sometimes helps us. There are those who claim Christ is uh, Savior but would uh, live just how they want. They don't seek Him for direction. They don't consider Him to be Lord of their life. They, they live in any manner they want to live, and there's a, a disconnect. There's discontinuity when it comes to their profession of faith, what God has said about them, or at least what they profess in their own life. And if that's you this morning, you have no concern about that. If you can live your life any way you want to live without any concern or conviction and still claim to be a Christian, I urge you to repent and and consider whether you're part of the household of God. God will not let His children go too far without correction. And we need that correction because oftentimes we find ourselves, uh, we find ourselves out of alignment with that grace of God. None of us are perfect. amen? Amen. But if you're living and you're living a life inconsistent with the gospel, then I encourage you and charge you to repent and let Christ be not just a Savior, but Lord of your life. Walk and follow him. Well, that's what he's saying to the church here, and John Stott says it rightly. He says, we, uh, we see that purity and unity are two fundamental features of a life worthy of the church's divine calling. How does he flesh out when he says that we're to live a life that is worthy with which we have been called? Well, he says we're to do so, in verse number three, he kind of kind of captures that for us, by maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace what do we do by maintaining well we keep in a certain state don't we 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 keep in a certain position or a certain activity it is a call for us to guard over and protect uh, what he's talking about here and here in particular is the fellowship that we share with one another and what he's basically saying to us is that that we're not passive but we're to be proactive in our fellowship with one another he gives us four attitudes that we're to have. Notice verse number two. It begins with humility. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Why does he put all in front of it? I don't know, but I find it more convicting than if he just said live in a manner with humility. Humility. Not just a little bit of humility, but all humility. And again, this is not just applicable to our fellowship as a church, but it's applicable to your fellowship in a marriage, in your relationships, in your family, in your circles. And and really all of life were to live in a way that that were to display this great work of humility. Those of you who have read commentaries and maybe Roman uh, society, books on Roman society, would recognize that humility was not a virtue in the ancient days. In fact, it was considered the mindset of slaves and servants. That's good for you and me to know that. Why? Because we find that our master, who had no need to humble himself, who deserved all praise and all honor and all glory, humbled himself, became obedient, became a servant, became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. Philippians 2, right? Who is he speaking about? We speak about Jesus. If Jesus can humble himself in such a manner, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. We're to live in a way that is displaying humility towards one another, humility before God. And towards one another. Well. Our concept in the American culture. Just in Rome. That concept to have a full life. To experience all that we need to experience. Is counter to this. You may not agree with me. You may agree with me. It doesn't really matter my point of view. I'm just simply saying that. This is not natural to us. In fact it is Pride. Most often pride is the sin that keeps us from coming to faith in Christ and pride that wars against us after we come to faith in Christ. Pride is that idea, that attitude, that that impulse that nature to push our way forward. It is seen in the Pharisees as they would take the prominent seat in the uh, in the whole room. They they want the, the the big chair with the cushions. Give somebody else the folding chair. And Jesus says you should take the folding chair and that way they somebody might come and say we've got an empty seat up here. It was counter to their their idea. They wanted prominence. They pushed themselves forward. They were ate up with pride. It considered s- ourself it is almost as if it is a, a guard against that image in the mirror of myself so much so that I will guard it and my rights and my preferences against all cost or at all cost. It is a self-promotion. It overstates our worth and it devalues the worth of others. And friends, I I... I love you, and I don't say this mean-hearted or mean-spirited. That is something that we all fight with. That is something that we all fight with from time to time. That is a, an overstatement of our own worth and a devaluing of others. And Paul's simply coming to the church here that if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of Christ's call in your life, then you'll have to do it with humility. In fact, even James is it that says God wars with the proud and gives grace to the humble. James or Peter just left my mind at this point. But here we're reminded that the first attitude that he gives to us is a attitude of humility. And and quite frankly, is that not what the gospel so graciously gives to us? That he comes to us offering us eternal life and entrance into his kingdom based upon his own merit Ill regardless of how often you violated all of his laws and commands. There is only one door at the cross, but as one writer said, it is a low door. It is a, it is a door which we must bow down and humble ourselves to. We know the example in in the Gospels as Jesus was telling us about the two people praying. The one guy gets up and prays, thanking God for how good he was and that he wasn't like this poor sinner. And the other guy beats himself on the chest, lowers his head, and says, be merciful unto me. And he shows that attitude of humility. And he's saying to us here that if we're going to maintain fellowship together together, Uh, in the church and in your lives and the relationships in your lives, then you will only do that through humility. We must be careful masking masking our arrogance or our divisiveness as boldness. Sometimes we're able... Uh, to do those things, pushing our way forward without hearing or caring or considering others. We must be humble if we're going to maintain our fellowship together. Secondly, he mentions with that gentleness, Paul describes it this way to the Thessalonians. He's like, when I was with you, I was like a nursing mother with her child. That tenderness, meekness, which he showed among others as he cared for them. And that is really what gentleness and meekness is. That that strength under control to care for the well-being of others. Again, showing that attribute of humility and lifting up others. Well, that's really the attitude that we have in Philippians. Turn over with me, Philippians. Chapter number 2. So if there be any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and by the way, are there any of those things found in Christ? I'm sorry? All together? Well, that's, I think so too. He says, verse number two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord in one mind. There's that unity, this idea of, uh, of striving together, not against each other. Verse number three, do not nothing from selfish ambition, humility, right? But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How hey, many of you say, I got that knocked out? I, I mean, I do that. Go ahead. Let's bow for a word of prayer. But if we will maintain our fellowship, if we're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, uh, then this is the mindset that we must have. This is the mindset we must come back to. This is the one in which the Spirit is working out in our lives and that we're to display. Have this mind among yourselves, he goes on and says, or let not each of you look on it only on his own interest but also to the interest of others. That's not saying be a busybody, right? So if that's like your thing, he's not justifying that, Sorry. He's simply saying, don't just care about your own life, your own burdens, your own needs, but give thought to the needs and life and burdens of others. Care about what's going on in other people's lives. And that really is an outworking of our fellowship together. He goes on and says in uh, chapter number four, not only is there this work of humility and gentleness, but patience. We'll skip over that. Bearing one another in love. I really do think these two go together. And it reminds us that perfect people don't need to be put up with. You don't have to bear along with perfect people because they're perfect. And you don't have to worry because you're not them. And I mean that very lovingly. All of us have holes in our sanctification. All of us continually need someone to be patient and long-suffering. I know it's hard to believe that. But it is true that people really have to bear long with us as much as he's telling you to bear along with others. Uh, there's things that we do intentionally. Uh, there's things we do without thinking. There's. Uh, there's all sorts of disagreements that happen. And he says not everything is a rise to, to burn, the, burn the place down and, and start all over with a new group. He's saying, no, we're to live in a way that is patient and bearing long loving one another if we we're going to maintain and, and uh, keep this fragile thing we call fellowship. Perfect people don't need to be endured, but you and I, do praise God for that. It brings us back to a place of not being quick to think evil about each other. So let me give you a few practical helps if you're taking notes, and and I'll close with just uh, five things real quickly. I know you mentioned the number in your account and you're counting. You're like, man, one. How can we play this out or how does this play out in life? And first, it's just the very easiest thing that I could think of, and that is come worship together. There's something about magnifying Christ and our desire to worship Christ that unites us, uh, that strengthens us, that helps us regain our proper focus. Not setting our minds on certain preferences and certain things we like or or emphasizing the things that we don 't like, not everybody 's going to be happy all the time. Would you agree with that? You can be happy about that statement it 's true and, and and coming to worship together is helpful and needful uh, don 't forsake the assembling of yourselves together and some of you who are leaving camp of the woods, going back into the world, figuring. What you're going to do in your next steps, find a good local church and be a part of that fellowship and invest in that. Let them invest in you. How do we maintain this unity? Well, we're there to maintain it. Come worship together. Secondly, actively praying for each other. And as Greg would often remind us, with one another, pray for each other. You ever prayed... uh, Never mind, I won't even ask it. That's probably a bad question. So we'll we'll just put it this way. Each week we send out a prayer list. If you have a prayer request you'd like for us to put on it, we're, we, we don't know everything. Uh, we know very few things. You have to let us know and we'll put it on there. But every week there's a list of church members that rotates. That's a good way to start. Some of you have church directories. Uh, take time to look through and pray for one another. Now, those of you who are couples and fighting with this stuff, how about pray for your spouse, pray for one another and other contentious relationships in your life. Actively be praying and lifting up one another in prayer. If you don't receive the emails, church emails, you'd like to be on that email list, uh, come see myself or Mary after the service and and she'll sign you up on that email list the third thing i would say and that is this is a tough one but talk to one another simply say hi how are you Uh, one of the challenges in any congregation uh, is especially congregations that tend to claim to be a friendly church is they tend to be friendly in groups And uh, Mary and I have been uh, several places. One in particular, uh, I won't mention the name of. We actually grew up there. I surrendered to preach at this church. I got married there. We went back to visit to preach, and it almost felt like that, it it, it almost felt like I was getting in the way of the service. And I was the one preaching both services. It, It was awful. The guy actually gave me a check at the end of the Sunday night. I don't know what it was. He gave me a check at the end of the Sunday night and said, we got a business meeting. We'll talk to you later thanks for coming and <laughs> I left Mary and I left out the church uh, and and it just goes to show you sometimes we can claim ourselves a friendly church, but it is not hard to lose that and it takes activity it takes it takes us intentionally talking and and carrying and and having a conversation, getting to know each other, having a meal or a cup of coffee with someone or tea for those of you who like that sort of stuff. Those of you from England that like that sort of stuff, hey, John gave you out, and this applies to marriages as much as um, enjoy tea with her John, but i would say I would say in that, and I think this is very important. it also means if you 're going to talk to one another don 't give ear to gossip don 't give ear to that negative uh, um, talk towards one another talk to each other don't talk about each other it is amazing sometimes we'll endure that that people talking about our church family members or people in our fellowship you wouldn't do that with your own church with your own natural family we've been born again supernaturally into the family of god guard that gift that god has given to us and don't give ear to gossip or don't partake in gossip isn't that such a just such a, a, a awful temptation because we want to know. Well, you're just looking at me. I want to know. I'll, I'll be honest about that. And so if we are going to maintain fellowship, then we must maintain it by getting to know one another and not giving ear to gossip. The fourth thing I would mention is uh, take steps to maintain, uh, take steps to make things right we have to actively forgive one another. There's some wounds you can get cut or scratched or or a road burn on your knee or whatever, and you can do nothing to that and you'll be just fine. But there's other kind of injuries and there's other kind of, of things that happen to you. If you let it go unattended without dealing with it, then you may lose your arm or you may lose your leg or you may lose your life. And you say, well, that's good in the sense of your body, but that's just as true in the body of Christ, isn't it? It's just as true in our close relationships, in our family. If we let those things fester, it will kill you or it will kill that relationship. Uh, someone once said, as we walk with the Lord, one of the ways we walk victoriously is keep a short account of sin. That's a good. I think that's something good to remember. And I would say if we're going to maintain fellowship in the body of Christ and in our relationships, then we'll have to keep a short account of sin. We'll have to go to those who offended us or whom we offended and make those things right or seek to make those things right. I would say last, and let me just close with verse number 14 through 22 of chapter number 2. And that is we cannot... Do this in our own strength and ability, but it takes a God in us but I love paul 's prayer here, and I want to close with it or chapter number three, verse fourteen through twenty one speaking of that great mystery of that union fellowship that we have with one another in the gospel, this mystery that is that is manifesting the riches of Christ to this world, he says this. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Did you see that in verse number 20? Let me read that for you again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is my prayer for you in this church. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Uh, thank you for this gift of the fellowship that we share. Our common, common faith, our common love for Christ. Thank you for the uh, sweet fellowship that we have experienced and we experience here. And just pray, God, that you would continue to help us to maintain that, grow in our faith and love for Christ and our love for one another. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here this morning is lost and does not know you, they could not answer those questions affirmatively, saying, yes, that's true of me. I've, I've been saved. I've been born again. I pray that even, even today that you would... You would bring them to a place to not only consider these things, but humble themselves and call on the name of the Lord and receive that gift of salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.